what I wanted to talk about today is the will of God and our will as humans. Um, and the tension that exists between these two things. So we're going to explore some of this today. We have three questions that are really going to lead the way uh, in this exploration uh, of the will of God. Uh, and this is the three questions that we've got that are really going to define this time. And they are, if I ask you to live by God's will, how am I asking you to live? In what ways is it different? And how do I discern it? One more time, if I ask you to live by God's will, how am I asking you to live? In what ways is it different? And how do I discern it? And I want to start this time out with a story. Um, I was, uh, was going to go to Costco yesterday because we were in desperate need of groceries. Um, and we are, like, really close to, like, having our fourth baby. Um, like, really close. And uh, July 9th is the due date, but uh, uh, Misa thinking it'll be here earlier. Um, I don't know why I spoke like Jar Jar Binks. That was weird. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> praise God. Yeah, thank you. But, uh, yeah, so I think it'll be here earlier. But anyways, I was going to go to Costco, and I, I told the fan, hey, I'm going to go to Costco. And Brixton was like, I want to go to Costco. And I was like, hey, buddy, uh, if you go, then Brightly's going to want to go. And then Presley wants to just whatever. She doesn't know what's going on, but she's just going to want to go. And I'm definitely not going grocery shopping with three kids. Uh, <laughs> I love you guys, <laughs> but not like that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but I, uh, I was like, uh, you know, I'll take, I'll take, uh, so I was with Brightly and Brixton upstairs. So I was like, hey, listen, here's the deal. I can take one of you, I can manage one of you, but I cannot take two of you. But it's unfair for me to choose. So what you're going to have to do, Brixton and Brightly, these are my two oldest, is that you're going to have to uniformly and agree together on one of you going, or if you can't agree, then neither one of you get to go. So this was the test I put out there for them. And uh, it was really awesome to watch over the next 15 minutes as each one of them exercised their will like flint, <laughs> like stone with the other one. And it went through so many different variations of negotiations, of, of, of some version of bullying each other, <laughs> of some version of like just trying to like punch it through. And then they tried to kind of course me and manipulate me at some different points. For like a minute and a half, all they were saying was, no, I'm going, no, I'm going, no, I'm going, no, I'm going. And that was literally for 90 seconds they did that. And I sat there watching, and I was laughing half the time, and I was like, wow, this is such a, a, a really fun, exciting way to just watch these two wills just gridlocked, trying to get something they desired, and uh, I was like, wow, this is really kind of cool. And, you know, because I guess maybe I'm a pastor, maybe all Christians do this. But for some reason, I began to think of myself like with God and just realizing like how many different times I was like my desire. I was just like gridlocked on it. And I was just like so encaptured by my desire to go to Costco with God. And, <laughs> and, and I was thinking about that. And then, and then Brightly and Brixton, they each had their own way of kind of like you know, their little, little tricks, and Brightly, being my daughter, she had, like, a special daughter trick. We were just laying on the bed, and, and she rolled over, and then she, she rolled over and, like, kind of cuddled up to me, and then got into my ear and go, Daddy, bring me to Costco. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
Father, help me be strong. <laughs> help me, help me lead, help me, Jesus. <laughs> and then I started to try and teach them about negotiating and like compromise, and they weren't having any of that. I was like, Brixton, you know you can negotiate with her and you could let her go this time, and then in exchange for you going the next two times. You know what I mean? I was trying to teach him some business tactics like delayed gratification, increase all that kind of stuff. He was like, um, yeah, I'm going to go this time. <laughs> and I was like, well, no. Yeah. And so, uh, but it was funny because after about 15 minutes of them really, really exercising their will with one another, Brixton came up to me and goes, Dad, we, Dad, I figured it out. Neither one of us are going to Costco. <laughs> And I was so surprised that by the time I was going to the bathroom and he came up to me and told me uh, that news and I was like really impressed with him that he had come to the conclusion and he had the revelation that, hey, we can't figure this out and I'm not giving up ground, she's not giving up ground, so neither one of us are going to Costco. And, um, I, and I, I really loved this story. I loved what this represented because there's this will that we have in our life. The Bible talks about the spirit and the flesh uh, and in, I want to read you that scripture right away. In Romans 8, 13 through 15, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Much of this wrestle over our wills, you're going to realize, and I realize in my journey, that it's really a, a question of, am I being led by the Spirit of God? And I, am I cultivating a lifestyle that's a son and a daughter lifestyle with God? And when I ask myself this question, I realize that there's this flesh inside me. There's, this, there's, this, there's these things that I will to do. There's these desires. Some show up really obvious in the sin category, and we're like, oh, that's just obvious. Some aren't so obvious. They're really camouflaged. They're like sneaky, uh, fleshly desires. Uh, but, but we can realize, and I think we can all measure, that no matter where we've been, or where we are in our journey with Jesus. Maybe it's been 60 years. Maybe it's been 60 seconds. But like you got saved in worship, I guess. <laughs> but no matter where we're at with our journey, we can recognize that there's still this thing inside of us that wills to do unlike God does. How many of you guys recognize that? And it's a curious little creature inside of us. <laughs> it's a curious old man that longs to have its way. It's, it's a curious dynamic for me that when I got saved or when I said the salvation prayer, it didn't just surgically remove my desire or my fleshly desire. Going to be honest, that would have been a little bit more convenient. Uh, but that's not how it works because part of my choice to be like him and having the ability to choose otherwise is my act of worship and is my act of glorifying Father. That when I have choice and I choose to be like Father and I choose to pursue Father, this is indeed what defines my identity as a son or a daughter. If I didn't have the choice to do this, then there would be no glorification and worship for Father. It would simply be robotic measures of His behavior. And so there would be no connection, there would be no relationship. So really, what has to be established, bottom line, is that my will versus his will, it's a thing. It's a thing for sure, and my will or my desire does long for certain things. 
So if I'm asking myself the, the question, what does it look like to live by the will of God? It first begins to ask this really beautiful, amazing question and highlight a really important part of our journey, which is my will versus his will. And the first thing I'll say on this, and I'll lead us to that I already read a scripture on, is that a lot of being defined by or led by the will of God or finding it is choosing to live a spirit-led lifestyle. And this can be complicated. This can be even sometimes kind of strange. It can sometimes be a little bit evasive because much like the disciples on the boat, they're like, hey, is that you, Jesus? Because uh, I'm not sure, is that a ghost? Is that you, uh, and Peter's like, hey, if it's you, then just, uh, just say the words and I'll come to you. So many people find, our, many of us find ourselves in these places where the will of God or who God is isn't that clear to us. And especially in the ways he is partnering with us to be transformed. Behold, I am a doing a new thing. Who can perceive it? Who can see it? Who can understand it? Uh, honestly, the, the next place of growth for you uh, in Jesus, in a very personal way, is probably something that is somewhere between a ghost, somewhere between a like cloudy, kind of like, I think I know what God's doing in my life, but I'm not entirely sure what he's growing inside of me, or what to, is that Jesus? And boy, I don't know, to be spirit-led, it, it feels like it might even be a little bit weird. Like, do I wake up every morning and do I ask like, the questions, do I take a step out of bed yet? Like, how much is he asking me to be led by him? Is it possible for me to have every step and every breath and every arm motion be directed by the will of God? Like some kind of animatronics, remember those? And it's very like, because you're kind of waiting. There's like, a, there's like a pause in between it. So there's this really... Uh, strange, there's this really difficult to comprehend dynamic where I'm like, hey, you know, to be a son of God is to be led by the spirit of God. And you're like, dude, that sounds great. That sounds super cool. I really like that. To be led by God and by the spirit of God is to be a son of God. Cool. Awesome. But then you're like, okay, God, then show me your way. Show me what your will is. And, and this is what I believe has to happen if we want to live a spirit-led lifestyle is that we've got to decline the flesh lifestyle and we've got to reinterpret what it means for God to establish his will in our life. So if I am declining the flesh narrative, there are things that come really natural to me, behaviors that I do that are very natural. Uh, the, the, the definition over flesh is this, the flesh denotes mere human nature. The earthly nature of man apart from divine influence and therefore prone to sin and opposed to God. So we see that there's this real earthly human flesh instinct that exists inside of us. Uh, Romans 7.18 describes this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is uh, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. See, I know of God, but... But, you know, I don't really know God like that in that way, in that kind of connected way for me be, to be able to produce those things which are spirit and not just those things which are natural to me in my flesh. Does this make sense? So there's this way that seems very right and natural to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Thus, I need to understand 
that if it's not producing the fruitfulness of God that he talks about in the Bible, if it's not producing love and, and, and the lifestyle of Jesus, that is probably a flesh behavior and pattern. It's probably somewhere in the, in, in the scope of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So I've got to understand that even though that's my first instinct, I'm going to decline my first instinct. And I'm going to allow a vacuum to be created. And when a vacuum gets created, it means there's nothing there that is an expression yet. And so an expression is begging to be had. If I, um, I, I played volleyball at the Dittmars last night, and um, I, I've always played sports up until about six, seven years ago, and I've told you guys about it a little bit, but I've always played sports with this mentality in mind, which was to win. And so you did everything you could to win. And so your expression, my expression was defined simply by the notion and the motive to win. But then something strange began to happen when I really started a journey with Jesus many years ago. I began to have this mercy element that got folded into competition. Have you guys experienced this? Where you think of other people's needs and feelings during competition? Have you thought, have you experienced this? Anyways, it was a totally foreign entity for me. And when it began to happen, it actually began to compromise my ability to win. Like, for example, last night we were playing, and the ball goes up in the air. And many times the ball was up in the air, and the net's low enough, and I could jump high enough that I could just crush the ball. Just like, goosh. And it would have just flown so hard and so fast at the poor innocent bystanders at the other end. Kids girls and ladies, innocent people would have been in the pathway of this flaming spike. But you know what began to happen and I began to develop years ago is that I'm in the air and all of a sudden this trigger of mercy and this trigger of connectedness stops me and causes me to throttle back my intensity. Have you guys experienced this? Some of you, this was always natural to you. Eric, this, we might not understand this, but Jesus began to really cultivate this in me years ago, and it literally stopped me. Like three different times I can remember specifically, I throttled back and I kind of did this. They hit it back and scored on us. It was crazy. My first instinct was to crush it. And then all of a sudden, I learned to defer, and I learned to say no to my first instinct, and I learned to look for a new way and a new thing in Jesus, and it led me to go, Jesus, is that you, that mercy angle? It's out there on the water, very distant, and there's fog all over this place, but I think you're leading me to a different thing. This thing I've always known on how to do it that's even led me to be successful at different times, I see you doing a new thing in my life. I see it tempering. I see it mobilizing humility. I see it mobilizing connectedness and love and mercy and compassion. I see it doing something very different, but I couldn't find mercy trends until I said no to the other trends. I couldn't find the tones in the heart of God that led me to those places until I said no to those other places. So for many of you, it may not be this kind of a thing, but it's something different. And it's understanding that whatever comes natural to you that is unlike God, in order for you to be led by the Spirit of God, it's going to take you saying no to those very natural, fleshly, earthly desires. Even before you get a solution. Even before an alternative behavior is introduced to you. Romans 12.2 says it really well. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may prove what is the perfect and acceptable will of God. 
Many people think that the will of God is something that he, he writes out as instructions to you. We pray things like, God, what is your will for my life? And we begin to explore these ideas and these concepts of direction and instruction. And I've found that, in fact, God's will is not really established as much through direction and instruction as it is through transformation. And this is a really important pivot on how we perceive the will of God being illuminated in our life. If we see it as something that he transcribes as instructions and as a direction in our life, then we may be missing the concept. Remember what I said is we're going to have to say no to the flesh and we're going to have to reinterpret how he establishes his will. And in order for us to reinterpret how we establish his will, if we are trying to receive the will of God in instruction and in direction, we could be missing it entirely. We could be waiting for him to say, do this, do that, go there, pray like this, get on your knees, stand up and worship with your hands up. We could be waiting for very specific action behavior, action items for God to give us those things. And God can give us those things, of course, right? How many of you guys have received specific actions for him for you to do? Right, I have. But so much of what God says in the word, so much of how he actually establishes his will is through transformation, not information. So it's one thing to know of him, information. It's another thing to know him. Transformation. This is just all about connection. It really is. This is just simply a, a conversation about connecting with Father and loving Father so much that you take your will, you take your desires, and no matter what they are, you yield them to God. Peter's, Peter's statement, he says, Lord, if it is you, Lord, if it is you, What does this represent? It represents Peter had this this desire to know God. In that moment, God, God, is it you? I want to know, is that you? Is that thing, is, is that you? It's a desire to know God. It's a desire to be connected with him. It's a desire to have those things in our life that are very, very cloudy and vague and unclear It's a desire to know God in the midst of those things. That was his prompt. It's what I love about his his heart posture, Peter's heart posture here. He says, is it you? And then just give me your word. Tell me to come and I'll come. All of his motivation right there was simply to be connected to Jesus. It just happened that water was in between him and Jesus. It was all about connecting to Jesus. It was all about growing in that connection. It was all about knowing him. It was all about that really being connected to him. I think such an important part of our Christian journey is that we go from a place of knowing of him in certain aspects to truly knowing him very connected and very intimately. So that the places that he's authoring in our hearts, the transformations he's doing in our hearts, that we really begin to understand them and begin to partner with Jesus and we begin to seek him in those things. In the Romans 12-2 narrative, what's really cool about some of the translations is that they illuminate that when you are transformed by your mind being made new, it shows you and it illuminates to you what the will of God is. 
And if you're waiting or expecting God to reveal or illuminate his will to you before you're transformed, you're not partnering very well with him. You're not partnering with how God illuminates and reveals his will to you. He does it in you trusting that how he's forming you and shaping you will actually be the evidence and the tapestry and the living epistle that God is designing so that you can see his revelation on you and in you. That's such a different trust angle. That's such a different one than, God, I trust you to give me instruction and direction for my life. To God, I trust you to transform me that I will become your will, not just know of your will. That takes so much more faith to become his will, to become literally a, a living beacon that so loves Father, that Father has this place of trust in our life to author us and to transform us and to make our minds new. I studied psychology. I got my degree in psychology. The reason Romans 12, 2 is my favorite scripture is because the mind being made new shouldn't be able to happen. It shouldn't be able to happen. Our mind cannot just make a new mind. It, it should be outside of the constraints of the mind's ability to create a new mind. How could it? It could only do what's, what's within its composition. It could only do what it is. So for it to become a new thing is a supernatural miracle of transformative power partnered in by God. It's an inescapable truth that if your mind is made new, it is only an act of God that that takes place. I'm not talking about learning new things. I'm talking about for your mind to be made new. Not have new concepts and ideas, but for it to be made new. That's incredibly a hand of God gesture. That's incredibly a father-son dynamic. I like to talk about the analogy of, of, of this journey with God and, and getting to know God. Oftentimes, I think that we get to know God in this really know-of-him way and that it's, it's too disconnected. It's too disconnected and it's not deep and it's not vulnerable. It's not, it's not deep enough. And I, I like to think of it like this. Like it, it, it would be as if I asked you to be like Jimmy, the person, just a person Jimmy. And I like to think about this because the, the initial instinct or reaction for when I tell you to be like Jimmy, I wrote down all of the things that if someone told me to be like Jimmy, I wrote down all of the things that I would have to think about or figure out in order for me to be like Jimmy. And I'll tell you some of the ones I wrote down. I, first off, and absolutely, I would need to find him. For real, in, the, in a very real way, I would need to find this Jimmy that you're talking about. Wherever he is, whoever he is, wherever he lives, I would need to go there and I would need to find Jimmy. If you told me that this was the way, the truth, and the life to be like Jimmy, I would need to find him first. Nothing else would matter if I didn't find him. People could tell me all day, Jimmy is like this. Jimmy laughs like this. Jimmy does that. Jimmy wears these kinds of clothes. And I could try and do all of these things in some kind of like mimicking fashion, religion. Or, or if I actually want to become like him, it comes from a process of me finding him and doing whatever it takes to build a relationship with him. Why? Because I need to see how Jimmy talks so that I could talk like him. And not just someone telling me how he talks, I need to experience it. I need to hear him, how he, how, what's his tone when he says hello? What's his physical posture like when he hugs me? 
Does he side hug? <laughs> Does he do a big hug like this and just, yeah, and kind of push back a little bit on me so I feel like I'm getting ran over? Does he wait for me to come to him? Does he do a 90-10 like hitch? I mean, like, I really need to know, like, how does God, how does Jimmy act? How does he act when he's mad? How does he act when he's sad? How does he act when I disappoint him? How does he act when I reject him? How does he act when I, when I shame him? Well, how does he act when I don't act like him and we're friends? How do I act when I turn my back on him? How, do I act when I, how does he act when I steal from him? How does he act when I don't give him credit for something he deserves credit for? I need to know, how does Jimmy act? I need to know, how does Jimmy feel? I need to know how Jimmy feels and acts at home. I need to know how he acts at school. I need to know how he acts at church. I need to know how he acts on the street. I need to know how he acts with a stranger or with a friend or with a family member. All of a sudden, when we really begin to think of this as an actual person I need to get to know in order for me to be like him, it really does change a lot of things. And I actually think if we, if we lined it up next to how we pursue relationship with Jesus, I actually think sometimes when we, when we line it up and go, okay, if I need to be like Jimmy, okay, then I need to be like Jesus, am I doing those things which I would do with Jimmy with Jesus? Have I found him? Or is he still a rumor, a good rumor that I would like to know? But I still don't know. I don't even know how to find him. Or maybe you found him at one point, you walked with him a little bit, and then he like went into a sketchy neighborhood and you're like, ah, Jimmy, I'm sorry. I can't. (laughs) You know the promised land with the giants? (laughs) He's like, Jimmy, I can't go into that neighborhood. I'm sorry, I don't know if you know me. I'm a white boy from Summerlin. (laughs) I don't... So I've I've known Jimmy at some point. I know Jesus at some point. But there was a couple things that I just couldn't find the faith and the courage to continue to know him or get to know him or walk with him. There was a couple boat storm situations I found myself in, and I panicked. <laughs> no lie, I panicked. A couple boat storm situations where some dude Peter around me was like, Jesus, just give me the word and I'll walk. And then when he walked on water, I was like, what? How did that happen? How come I didn't walk on water? Or when he started to sink, I was like, ha, see, that's why we didn't walk on water. <laughs> I think sometimes when we think about this as just a relationship and and our will versus his will, simply our will becomes less when we just fall more in love with the person of Father. You can know his will, his law, his deeds, but really it's the access point of love and connection and relationship that causes and gives you the ability to walk in those deeds. It's an inescapable reality. Bless you. It's an inescapable reality that if you, if you want to be like him, you must first find him. Um, there's this beautiful scripture, Luke 11, 9 through 13. It's in the English Standard Version. I'll read it to you. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
This is a beautiful promise. I like to look at these relational promises and guarantees. I like to pay attention to them. Because so much of life is very hard to predict and very hard to know. But there's parts in Jesus that if we have the right scope and the right perspective and paradigm of our relationship connection, I'll never, ever feel disappointed. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I'll say it like this, you become whatever you pursue. And that, true, that, that much has always been true to me in my experience and true in my observation in life and true in biblical narrative. That whatever it is that you set your face to and that you set your desire to, whatever it is that you pursue with your whole heart, with your soul, with your mind, and with all these things, you really do become formed by it. You become shaped by it. You can see with athletes or businessmen, you can see it with those folks, uh, whatever it is that they've put their full life and heart to. They really do become the composition of that category or of that vocation or of that lifestyle. And I really believe that there's there's a Christian narrative in our will and his will. And there's a Christian narrative that looks like God inviting us to fully pursue him. And how we perceive that, how we manage our flesh or say no to it, and then how we conceive of what it really means to pursue God is so important. And a lot of times I think that we've seen this narrative as one like the disciples experienced where to really fully pursue God, I'm going to have to quit my job. You know what I'm saying? Like the disciples, he's like, hey, I'll make you a fisher of men, so quit your job. Follow me. And so sometimes we can think of this, if I'm really going to respond to the call of God, it means that i got to quit my job and my family He's going to have to rain down, like, money on the lawn every morning. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we can, I, I think, interpret this, if I'm all in with Jesus, then I'm not doing a, just a job. And I think it's a little bit of a misnomer. It's a misinterpretation. It's a misconcept of really how God designs and cultivates his will in our life now. And that there is, there's, this, there's this much that I feel is very, very true about how we journey with Jesus that the what we're doing is not nearly as important as who we are and who we're becoming. And this, I think, can be seen when you see Paul as a, as a tent maker, and you can see disciples having real jobs or apostles having jobs and, and still being fully capable of representing and walking with God. I, I think when we, when we really unpack this thing, we see the will of God isn't nearly as much about my vocation as it is about my transformation. To be like God does not require any kind of job, does not require any kind of vocation, unless, of course, he's clearly and directly communicating to you about your job and your vocation. Then that's a relationship connection, and you should respond and yield because he's talking to you. So then you would respond out of relationship, not out of duty and obligation, but because you trust God. You trust him with your vocation. You trust him with your finances. So if he speaks it, then awesome. But if he doesn't, do your best to pursue God, to allow him to transform you, and to celebrate the will that he establishes in your life. 
I believe if we enter into this lifestyle where we're consistently praying, God, don't just show me your will, but make me your will. Transform me into your will. I believe this is the kind of Christian lifestyle that leads to blessing, that leads to fruitfulness, that leads to prosperity, or it leads to just places of peace no matter what's going on. I trust, I trust that God is cultivating and designing and forming and shaping a really cool narrative in each of us. I may not understand it. I really may not understand it at all. But I am committed to seeking him. Even if I'm in a boat storm situation, I'm, cons- I'm, I'm committed to hearing his voice, to finding out who he is, and to pursuing him, even if it means I may drown. Most of the instruction that Jesus gives us in the word or in our lives is going to be transformative-based, not information-based. And if we trust him, then we'll trust that when we become transformed to become like him, then we'll actually get to read the tapestry of our life and we'll actually get to understand like, wow, that's really cool what you were doing there. Have you guys ever heard God speak something to you or begin to do something in you and you only realize what it was until it was already done? God cultivates freedom past our ability to understand or know. He cultivates peace beyond our understanding because our understanding is finite and limited. And in fact, we're to be spirit-led, not mental capacity-led. Our mind is not our savior. It's not our form, forming, authoritative, narrative, shaping, potter. Our mind is not the trick. In fact, our mind, psychologically and scientifically, it actually creates ruts. It creates habits and it creates patterns that continue to fire and fire and fire in the way that they've been established. So really what we're talking about is allowing God to trigger us out of those patterns and lead us outside of those known places, those boat mentalities. And it's really allowing God and us to say, God, is that you out there in the place I have no idea? Is that you in the place out there? Is that, is that expression you? Because it, it's going to take you being committed and having a deep, deep belief or a strong belief, a conviction over this direction, over the voice of God. 